to the Workplace Bullying Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Namey, social psychologist and the co-founder and director of the Workplace Bullying Institute. For nearly 25 years at WBI, we've devised solutions for everyone, from bullied individuals and unions to employers and lawmakers. This podcast showcases the reality of workplace bullying and abusive conduct and related phenomena from the dark side of the world of work and society. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm joined by Jessica Childress of the Childress Law Firm in Washington, D.C. Jessica is a a veteran, although she's a young woman, she's quite the veteran uh, trial attorney and uh, NELA member, National Employment Lawyers Association. She's on the plaintiff side. And I think as we have this conversation, you listeners will understand she's on our side, on the side of the underdog of the aggrieved employee who's seeking relief from an abusive, toxic workplace. And the reason for talking with Jessica now is that she's um, written a new ebook and has a new e-course titled Peace, P-E-A-C-E, um, Leaving a Toxic Workplace on Your Own Terms. First of all, well, I want to ask you so many questions, but I guess the first is peace. Jessica, welcome, but why the word peace? That's a wonderful, wonderful, unused word in our jargon. Well, Gary, thank you so much for having me this e- or this afternoon. Uh, peace really is, I think, what we should all experience in our daily lives, especially in the workplace. We are giving our time, we're giving our talents to workplaces, and everyone should experience a sense of peace. And when you are not working in an environment that protects psychological safety, your peace is disrupted. So peace not only describes the mental uh, state of being when you're working in a place that really protects your psychological safety, but peace is also a term that you use when you're leaving a place. Peace, it's a peace sign. It means I'm leaving. Bye-bye. And so when that that term to me in this particular e-course and uh, upcoming e-book, it means either I am leaving or I it has a, it's a double entendre. It means I'm either leaving or I will have a sense of psychological safety in this workplace. Just just waves of tranquility come over me. Um, uh, we used to live in Hawaii, so it's another one of those beautiful sunsets when I, when I hear the word peace. No one uses it. Because the the um, person subjected to a toxic workplace is living in a state of terror, and uh, it is the antithesis of peace. It is a goal. What a noble goal. Okay, so toxic workplace, you're using that phrase. But before I ask you to define it, um, why the obsession with this uh, focus on a, the dark side of the world of work? For you. Well, I think it's a it's a reality, Gary. I am a black woman. I've worked in workplaces where I don't see myself represented. Um, I am, you know, I have many identities that I bring to work, and I always talk about this when I train organizations. So I represent both employees, but I also train organizations in anti-harassment and inclusion. So it is important that we are able to represent all of our identities at work, that we're able to feel like we are accepted at work, everyone, uh, regardless of what your identity is. Where do we spend the most time? 
And it's certainly not with our loved ones and with our friends and with our family members, with our fur babies, it's at work. And so it's uh, it's an obsession because this is really my life's work. Um, I always wanted to be a civil rights attorney in law school. That was what I wanted to do in some way, shape, or form. And that form of civil rights really did come in the form for me as an employment attorney. I started my career representing solely management, and you get really get to see, uh, you know, what the the strengths are, what the weaknesses are in organizations, and so. It's really, I think there's no other place that I think our civil rights are more at risk than in workplaces. How often are we going to, uh, our civil rights are at risk in many places, but at work, that's where your rights have the, the highest likelihood of being violated. And so it's really my mission to make sure that organizations and individuals know what workplace, what their workplace rights are what is unlawful, but also what's uncivil, because those slight, those petty slights really can create a toxic workplace. And we'll, I'm sure, talk about the differences between toxic and hostile, because hostile workplace is a a legal term of art. But it's important that the petty slights, the things that create toxic, disrespectful workplaces aren't tolerated, because I think that those things um, that accumulate over time, protected, of course, with to a protected class, those lead to hostile workplaces under the law. My mind's reeling. Uh, uh, first, uh, I got to write this down because I'm just, I don't know whether it's the onset of dementia or not, but I just, I'm going to forget. I, we have to come back to the incivility versus toxic slash abusive work environment uh, conundrum. I, there's a brand new study out that I want to talk about. Um, but second, you mentioned early in your training, early in your career, you did the corporate side. So you got to see uh, from the management side how they would defend these uh, situations and circumstances. But one of the traps that a potential plaintiff, in other words, a bullied worker falls into when searching for an attorney, because they everyone wants to sue, they think they're going to find justice in a courtroom. Hint, unlikely, but it's a very difficult path to pursue. But um, they will find they will look under employment lawyers. Would you just give a brief tutorial on the difference between plaintiffs' attorneys and the employment attorneys who um, are defenders of uh, managers? Sure. And Gary, just to be clear, I still occasionally do work with management. Uh, with well, you have to make money. Understood. I, well, I, and I don't think that all management is bad. I think that there are management officials that are trying to do the right thing. I think there are companies that do try to both walk the walk and talk the talk. I, I think that, that, that it's not that all, um, that all management officials are bad. I think that we have laws that make it very, very hard for employees to uh, enforce their rights. I think that we, the more training is needed. But when you are looking for an attorney to answer your question, when you are looking for an attorney who, and you're on the plaintiff side, you do have to find an attorney that both that represents plaintiffs. And so it's uh, with their organizations like NILA. 
uh, National Employment Lawyers Association that has, uh, NILA has an online directory, at least the Metropolitan Washington affiliate where I am a member. Uh, we certainly have a, an online directory where you can find attorneys who represent employees. And so it's important that your employment, your attorney does have experience representing, if you're an employee, has experience representing employees, because if you are looking for uh, an attorney, if the, if the attorney only represents management side um, organizations or re represents management, that attorney is likely not going to take you on as a client. Uh, so it is important that you do find the right attorney, the attorney with experience, representing the cases that you have, because there are a plethora of civil rights laws in the employment arena. So there are disability laws, there are anti-discrimination laws on the basis of several protected categories, there are wage and hour laws. And so your attorney really should have experience with the specific problem that you're enduring. Now that you talked about that, the non-discrimination law is the most famous at the federal and, and then necessarily mirrored at the state level, uh, non-discrimination laws based on Title VII and the rest. Why don't you define for our listeners what protected, and I'm using air quotes, protected status groups are, who they are. Absolutely. And, 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 and do you think that those are truly adequate protections. Go ahead. So Gary, it really depends on where you are, uh, where you, what jurisdiction you live in or what jurisdiction you work in. That's really going to determine what's protected. But on the federal level, race, sex, national origin, religion, pregnancy status, disability status, those are all protected on the federal level. I'm very lucky to live in Washington, D.C., to work in Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C. is a very, very protective state for employees. So D.C. protects parental status, caregiver, family status, matriculation status, your status of uh, be, uh, sexual orientation. Uh, let's see, all of the federal, uh, federal categories. Um, so pregnancy status. I'm just trying to go over. Yes, additional. In other words, it supplements the federal. It supplements the yeah, federal. Yeah. So there are 23 yeah. protected categories in D.C. And so that is just, we're very, very lucky. I know I, I feel very, very lucky to live in a state where ev almost almost every category that you can think of is protected in D.C. So if an employee comes to me that is enduring uh, a work environment where they believe that they've been discriminated uh, on the basis of a protected category in DC, it's much easier for that employee to go to our administrative body, the DC Office of Human Rights, and file a claim. Whereas if the employee lived in another jurisdiction uh, that's far less protective of employees, um, I, I'm not licensed to practice in, I'll uh, just take Montana, but I, I don't believe Montana has the protections that DC has. So those employees are going to have a very different experience in enforcing their employment rights, uh, just depending on where you live and where you work. And so what would be if a person is discriminated against on the basis of their T-shirt in D.C.? Well, we do in D.C., D.C. protects personal appearance discrimination. And wow. so 
it's um, this, and, and, and nationally, uh, hairstyle discrimination under the Crown Act is now protected. And so that's really, so, but in DC, that, that was always protected. Personal appearance was pretty much always the Human Rights Act. So now, really- that, talk about the protected status group membership as a requirement to pursue legal action. That's and, right. And, so, and, and, go ahead. So if you are claiming that you have experienced discrimination, you have to tie that discrimination to a protected category. So if you, in taking the t-shirt example again, if you're discriminated against for the basis of you're wearing a t-shirt and your boss doesn't like your t-shirt, you could potentially file a claim in DC for personal appearance discrimination if you have an adverse action associated with that discrimination. So the law is very formulaic in what it requires. It requires, number one, that you are discriminated against on the basis of a legally protected category. And those protections are supplied by the federal law and the state law. You also have to have an adverse action associated with that discrimination. And so if you don't have those things, well, you are not going to prevail in court. And people need to understand that, that if you are not a member of protected status group, you don't have standing. You can't, don't, don't count on there being, um, using the law against a hostile work environment uh, if you are not a member of, of a protected group. Please understand that, right? That's right. I mean, and there are also other civil rights that are protected under anti-retaliation statutes. So you can be. Oh, great point. Let's make that point. Um, My my expert witness work, I'm not an attorney, but my expert witness work has taught me over the years that the original claims that there was animus, hatred toward you based on and disparate treatment based on um, your membership in a group because you are a person uh, that meets those criteria, then uh, that's so hard to prove. But retaliation, much different. Go ahead and pontificate about that. I'd love to hear your view on that. So so if you make a good faith, uh, so let's say that I'm taking my t-shirt example again you make a good faith claim that you believe you're discriminated against on the basis of your t-shirt and and similarly situated employees are treated differently um, and you've suffered an adverse action. Now in Montana, for example, you may not um, there may not be, there, there, there is no protection, there's no protected class for personal appearance. Now, if you are But if you make a good faith claim of discrimination, if you really believe that that was discrimination, there is possibly a basis for retaliation because making a complaint is what's called protected activity. So meaning it's protected under the law, that that disclosure is protected. So whether that disclosure is oral, whether it's in writing, you're making a report that's protected under the federal EEOC, under under the laws that the EEOC enforces, that is presumably protected activity um, under uh, the generally protected activity. So now your employer is prohibited from taking what's called an adverse action against you. So adverse action really is 
critical to uh, the success of any claim. You do have to have an adverse action and that can be demotion. Termination is the most obvious adverse action. You really can't get more adverse than being terminated from a position. So if there, there also has to be what's called temporal proximity. So meaning the protected activity has to occur close in time to the adverse action. So if something happened you know, 10 years ago, if you engaged in protected activity 10 years ago, and then 10 years later, you're terminated, it's really unlikely that any judicial body is going to find that adverse action occurred or that the, that the protected activity was the causal basis, uh, that there was, ca- that was the causal basis for your adverse action. So there has to be causation. So you really can think of every legal, every law as a formula where all of these things have to be, all of these factors have to exist. And there is um, there's no way to determine, you know, how any judicial body will look at all of these factors. It's always a totality of the circumstances um, situation. However, all of those factors do have to exist. And so retaliation is another basis for a possible legal claim uh, if you've engaged in the requisite protected activity. Right. And the timeline will tell you that. If That's it right. shows that subsequent to your As a consequence, if you're filing, daring to complain, filing a complaint, then they ratchet up the the cruelty. You can, uh, that's much more likely to lead to some success. Uh, There is a, go ahead, go ahead. uh, Not to interrupt, but I just wanted to add this one factor in for, for people who are enduring potentially toxic workplaces. Because as I mentioned, there's so many factors. You know, when you walk, when you're working, things happen quickly. Many, many things are said, many things are written. It's important for an employee who may be enduring a toxic workplace that may not necessarily be hostile, may not necessarily be retaliatory uh, yet, but it's important if they think that they are enduring this toxic workplace to keep a chronology so that they can later bring that to the attorney that they are consulting with so that the attorney really can see that, that whether there's temporal proximity. It's really helpful when you can uh, pinpoint dates and pinpoint who said what and pinpoint the protected activity in a written chronology. And so when you're actually documenting those things, it's helpful for the employee, it's helpful for the attorney who's assessing whether there could be a potential claim. So, and it's it's helpful if there ever is a dispute so that the, the employee knows exactly what happened, who the witnesses are, and they can, um, they can identify what evidence may exist. I want you to, sorry to lean on you so heavily as a legal dictionary for us, but I have you and I just, and you're- No worries at all. But um, the tort of um, intentional infliction of emotional distress fits almost perfectly with the bullying situation, the aggrieved employee who has suffered health-harming misconduct. And yet, it's not. It's so rarely successful in uh, trials or even in cases, leading to so many summary judgments and and dismissals. And our friend uh, David Yamada at Suffolk University Law has written extensively about this: um, the inadequacies of IIED cases, as they're called, 
We wouldn't need to have worked 20 years to try and enact our healthy workplace bill legislation in all the states where it's been introduced, 31 and two territories, and yet never been fully enacted into law anywhere except Puerto Rico, for crying out loud, um, as a counter to the uh, inadequacies of IIED. And one of the four defining pillars of uh, claims of emotional distress, uh, one of the pillars is that the conduct be outrageous. What, and, and to, to you and I, not you as a legal person, but as just a normal person, anybody would see commonsensically, in other words, according to the reasonable person test, that a lot of the misconduct that we're going to be describing in a toxic workplace is outrageous. And yet, the courts, it's not. Why not? What's the problem with the definition of outrageousness in, in emotional distress claims? Well, I think generally, I think number one, to require, I mean, the majority of the statutes that protect employment civil rights require this ridiculously high standard um, that create the that create tolerable uh, to have and if we take the the federal counterpart the hostile work environment that under the federal law that requires a severe and pervasive um, a severe and pervasive hostile work environment in order for an employee to prevail those are extremely high standards and I always uh, with train I will when I do train uh, organizations I always train on the fact that that should not be the standard that you employ within your organization no one wants to work in an environment where your standard for acting on misconduct is severely severe and pervasive or outrageous right who that's not the company culture that you want to create and so when it's it's really important when i'm doing trainings to make sure that i it, i really really instill in organizations the fact that they should be creating respectful work environments because once you are it, it, using the legal standard from whether that standard is supplied from an intentional infliction of emotional distress, uh, common law tort, or from the federal civil rights, the hostile work environment standard supplied by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, uh, that standard is entirely too high. It does not create a psychologically safe workplace. If that's what if you're doing a workplace investigation and you're trying to determine whether any misconduct happened, that standard, even though it, it might be very hard for an employee to meet that standard, but it doesn't mean that something bad didn't happen in a workplace. Um, because I think that that standard is just um, it, it really, really creates. Uh, intolerable workplaces, and so exactly, exactly. And if you manage by well, just well, it's legal. That's minimally functional. It's not even a way to operate um, uh, a a street lemonade stand. For crying out loud, you there's no way to treat people. I mean, it's it's the laziest of employer tactics. D.C. actually has changed their human, they amended their Human Rights Act about a year ago, uh, within the last year. 
And our standard is no longer severe and pervasive for harassment claims. It's, a, it's really a totality of the circumstances test that doesn't require a severe and pervasive analysis. And I think that that is wonderful when it comes to creating more respectful civil workplaces where toxic behavior, even if it doesn't arise to the severe and pervasive standard, still could be a violation of our DC Human Rights Act. And I really think that that is where, that's where the legislation I believe should go in that direction. You know, having, testified in various legislatures around the country. I, I came to learn prior to Scott Walker, Wisconsin had a, uh, a marvelous um, pro-labor set of laws and uh, legal climate. And then that was stripped away. New Jersey, similarly. But when you're describing what's happening in D.C., it just sounds, uh, I get euphoric thinking about the paradise that D.C. offers. But there are so many listeners that are sitting in red states saying, what is she talking about? Oh, my God, I have nothing it's by comparison. But that's why she said, Jessica said in the beginning, it depends on your jurisdiction. And that's, right. that's oh, my gosh, that's important. Hey, that's right. let's delve into the toxic workplace. Your definition, please. So toxic workplaces to me are uncivil workplaces, and they don't have to arise to these levels of severe and pervasive misconduct under the law. They may not be protected to a, prote a legally protected class. They could be the microaggression. So as I mentioned uh, earlier, Gary, for me, I'm, I'm a Black woman who has been working in professional settings my entire career. And microaggressions do exist at work. I have experienced them myself, and they are harmful. They're not recognized under the law. I don't know of a case that even uses the term microaggression. Nonetheless, they happen every day, and they can make you feel very small. They can make you feel like you're not competent. Um, I've been called sweetie at work. That's not appropriate. Um, it's not appropriate. I've been called sweetie as a practicing attorney. Um, that's not appropriate. It, it, it makes it made me feel like a child or someone who wasn't a professional, even though I was, you know, I always present myself in the most professional manner. Um, and so I. Oh, you bring up a point. Let's stop you there. Sure. So if you are offended by or you are sensitive to being uh, referred to in a demeaning manner. Whose right is it to define that upset and that that consequence? That, in other words, is it the recipient's perception that's more important, or the one who delivers the utters the phrase "sweetie" by saying, "Well, you read it wrong. That wasn't as I intended." Sure. So I, I mean, I think that when I think of my particular circumstance. Um, I don't think that the person was intending harm to me when saying it. It but did. does it matter? It does not matter. It doesn't yes. matter. Exactly. It doesn't matter. It's, it's your on, perception, right? It, well, it's based. Well, the law would say that it's the reasonable person's perception, and that reasonable person is typically supplied by a jury. If you're thinking about what, or judge, or jury, when you're thinking about whether or not, or whether what or what the law is, but. 
everyone is very different. Everyone has certain traumas that they bring into the workplace. Everyone has a different lived experience. And so one person's perception of sweetie may be very different, but being called sweetie may be very different than another person's. That's, however, we live in a very uh, extremely diverse society. So we should really be educated about, you know, how as many people as you can imagine would feel about the term sweetie being, you know, delivered in a professional setting. Um, and so the onus you ask, you know, who does that, uh, who, who defines Whose perspective matters. Yeah. Whose perspective matters. And I, it's, it, I think it's the person who's receiving that comment. I think that person's perspective matters. I do too. And by the same token, as you described earlier, if you're an employee and you're, you've helped create a system where demeaning phrases or microaggressions are routine, you're going to offend a large number of people. But you, you again, don't be minimalist here. You're not waiting to hit a leg, bump into a legal boundary where you're going to face expensive repercussions, but rather, how does this affect people on a daily basis as there are witnesses to this behavior? So it's not just the recipient, but it's the co-workers who see it. And then this becomes over time with cumulative, here's the key, cumulative exposure, even the most unsubstantial, benign, negative behavior, but albeit negative behaviors, become more toxic, become more destructive. They pick up, they gain power. There's a brand new study that addresses the age old, and I say age old, in my world, age old is since the mid-1980s. The, the, the rift between the incivility researchers and the workplace bullying slash mobbing researchers. And for bullying, there has to be a severe consequence to meet the criteria, to meet the definition. And that's health harm or economic harm or loss of social status, but it's consequential. With incivility, it's much more, it's minor, that's always been considered a discrete category of behaviors, those which are subjecting a person to uncivil behavior from others, which is, incivility is non-normative behavior. You're, you're just not doing things the way we do things here. And and by golly, you got to come around and the group puts pressure on individuals and all the rest. I'm a social psychologist. And so that's where I can take off on all the group norms and group pressure and scapegoating and the like. But nevertheless, back to the difference. This newest study shows, however, it bridges the gap that with cumulative exposure to the incivility, otherwise benign, small stuff, if it goes unattended to, unaddressed by the employers, it can escalate clearly to the bullying. In other words, it picks up uh, toxic characteristics because just because the, the wrongdoers, the perpetrators, see they can get away with it. And since no one's, they're not bumping into any guardrails, no, no system is, is uh, constraining them. They just uh, go on and perform unfettered, and that's the problem. So we we we're um, we're at our own peril if we ignore incivility. So Absolutely. everything you were just saying, go ahead. 
No, absolutely. I think we're at our own peril. We, when people are watching and feel that they can't say anything about the incivility, I think that creates a culture of fear where they believe that incivility will just persist. And I mean, it's like uh, a cancer that spreads. It's unfortunate because it's it creates a power dynamic where we allow certain behavior, certain things that are said to just uh, fester. And that festering really can create bullying later on because no one feels as though those little things are checked over time. And so it really is that accumulation that later on creates this bullying because the person, the people who are witnessing the behavior and the, and the, per, the direct target of the behavior really doesn't feel like they have the power to say anything. And that's why, Gary, I'm so happy that we can have this conversation because hopefully it does empower someone to say, I'm not alone. And I, and, and I can really sympathize with these feelings and, and it's okay to feel like I can't say anything. And I know for me, there have been times that things have been said and I don't, and you know, I'm an advocate, but I still didn't have the words to speak up for myself because I didn't know, you know, how to experience the thing or how to perceive the thing that was said. I didn't want to be seen uh, as someone who was not strong in the workplace. And so it's important to remember that these things happen all the time. And it's important for someone to speak up. I, I, I really, really want to empower employees to speak up, but I understand how hard that is. And this is why I think educating education is so important so that people feel like they're not alone and they know, you know something bad has happened and you should say something. Okay, that self-silencing tendency happened. You make a, such an important point. It happens to everyone because you're responding to the externality. You're responding to the culture you're in, the workplace climate that you're in. You're engulfed by it. You're immersed in it. it it's, it's nothing about you um, that's wrong, but you, in fact, the most the more socially adept you are the more tuned in to the workplace cues you are the more likely you are to self suppress because you don't want to be that non normative stick out like a sore thumb person that you don't want to be the noisy one and then when you as soon as you start to think that way that uh, people take a turn towards self blame and then then it must be me and then that's that's terribly terribly destructive now we it's so funny over the years uh, in the thousands of interviews how do what can a target do what can a person do and they say just quit i said no 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 i'm not saying just quit it's never that simple and don't insert that little uh, minimizing uh, adverb of just what do you mean just quit there are there are repercussions here, economic, social, the rest. You can't just tell somebody to give up a livelihood because of their mistreatment. And yet, I also know and spend a lot of time in our uh, education of clients emphasizing that if you don't get out of a, a place that has exposed you over the long haul to toxicity, it will uh, claim your health. And you aren't going to live that much longer. You're shortening your life. So having said that, uh, after the beautiful word peace, your program says leaving a toxic workplace on your own terms. 
So let's talk about under what conditions should a person consider leaving? How do they weigh the options? Leave or stay? And then we'll talk strategies of how to leave. But first, let's let's consider that that major question, that choice of paths, leave or stay. How do you handle that? Yeah, Gary. So the upcoming ebook and e-course, Leaving on Your Own Terms, it really, they have to be your terms. They can't be terms that other people tell you that you should just quit because it's not as easy as just quitting. There is a range of options in between uh, and you should assess Number one, your personal life and your professional goals, your personal goals, professional goals, your family obligations. I just uh, presented a webinar. Things to consider before leaving a toxic workplace, and I'll likely do that webinar again because we really did cover the range of questions that you should consider. But one of those is, you know, what, how long is it going to take me to find another job uh, if I am trying to find another job? Do I have any non-competition agreements that would limit my ability to work for another employer? Uh, and that question, the validity of non-competition agreements is being uh, litigated and, and is being considered uh, under the National Labor Relations Act, but that's another conversation. But still, it's something to consider. Uh, you know, does my family rely on me for health care benefits that are provided from my job? That's one thing to consider. Does my job actually give me personal value? Is there something that I enjoy about my work routine? Because they're really, these workplace situations are nuanced. Not every single, you might be working in a toxic work environment, but not every aspect of your day might be bad. It might not not every aspect of your day. And therefore, be, you might not know it as a toxic workplace, period. Exactly. So there may, be mm -hmm. there may be people that you actually enjoy from your job that you would miss if you don't go to work. Um, so there are many, many considerations, and you really have to take each one and assess each factor critically uh, with a lot of thought. If you do believe that you are actually experiencing a, an unlawful work environment, it really is important to talk to an attorney to determine whether or not they believe it is an unlawful hostile work environment, not just a toxic work environment, whether you would receive any judicial relief um, or relief from an administrative agency based on what you're experiencing, because you could potentially, you know, you could say, no, this is unlawful. And another body say, no, it's actually not unlawful. And, you know, you and, and so you really want to know what your legal options are, but also just what the practical realities are. If you were to leave, would you be able to get a job quickly? Um, would you have to move to find a job depending on your job market? Uh, so these are all key considerations. But to your point about health, you know, how is this affecting my mental health? Are you, you know, what are your medical providers saying about what you should do? And it's if you are working in an environment that is hurting you, you know, every single day, then that may be a, that might be the defining factor in terms of whether you should leave or not. But you have to, no one can supply that answer for you. No lawyer can tell you, hey, you should leave right now. No one friend can tell you. You have to weigh all of the factors and make the decision that really is best for you. And if it's a family decision, best for your family. I wonder how much a person can trust internal systems of reporting. 
Um, I know my answer, but you're my guest, so I want you to address that. Should should you again another fork in the road? That it so we're staying for now. Do I report it to the employer, and if so, to whom, at what level, uh, or do I not report? Because um, the the rumor is that the last person who reported it was driven out, uh, retaliated against so severely. So, what say you on that? On internal I, reporting. I, I mean, I can't say universally that people who report are retaliated against. I say that you should report misconduct. I mean, it is your obligation to report misconduct. I mean, if you have um, employment, I mean, I've worked on so many employment handbooks and there are typically reporting policies. You know, there are, uh, I don't know, I can't think of a handbook that doesn't have a reporting policy. And they so- They have to have the caveat, do they not? You. Do but not you have, to, you have to have an escape clause. You don't have to report if the person, your abuser, is the one you would normally report to. I think a best practice is to have uh, language in a handbook that allows you to report to someone else within the organization if your report, if your supervisor is the actual person who you're accusing of doing the wrongdoing or of effectuating the wrongdoing. Now. It depends on the organization. If it's a small organization, there may be very few people to report to. If you're working for, you know, a corporate giant, they probably have a huge HR department where you can report to any number of people. And so the practical reality of whether you will potentially, you know, if someone will treat you differently or even know about your report of misconduct I think it's going to depend on just the internal structure of the organization and every organization is very, very different. It's also going to depend on how how people respond to reports of misconduct is going to depend on how well trained uh, a person is and, and a group is in investigating uh, and investigating and responding to any reports of misconduct. And so should, should if, that employer be you said the the workers obliged to report should the employer be obliged to i don't treat the complaint at least credibly and then launch an investigation if warranted well the law does require uh that employers are they take um they take remedial measures and they do address those uh that allegations of misconduct that are at least allegations of harassment that they know about. That is an employer's duty. So they do have a duty to investigate. Well, you you, wait, wait, you use the term harassment. Now make sure that's, that's a legal term. Tell the listener that you are talking about that, what you're talking about. So exactly. So allegations of harassment, you are obligated to investigate those Um, in terms of toxic workplaces. Now, if it's a, it's a, if it's a, piece if it's an item of misconduct or an act of misconduct that may not arise to the legal definition of harassment, should employers still investigate that? There should be some level of investigation to determine if this bad thing occurred. Now, whether that is something that a person should be terminated for, the range of sanctions should certainly depend on the egregiousness of the act. But I think that employers as a best practice should look into every 
allegation of misconduct, whether that misconduct is harassment uh, that meets the legal definition of harassment, or whether that is just a, a petty slight, um, a potential microaggression. I think that everything should at least be investigated to some extent, whether you call um, you know, outside counsel to investigate or whether you investigate internally, it really should depend on the nature of the circumstance. But I think every single allegation should be addressed. Do you, what role, well, the comparison to, in comparing laws to codes of conduct and employer policies, um, how do they, uh, violations of, Policies and codes of conduct. I I know mission, vision, value statements are are great lofty pronouncements framed in mahogany frames on part printed on parchment paper, but they don't seem to have any actionable consequences if violated. What about policies? Do they carry the weight of law too or not for employers? I mean, I think that they're almost the same policies and codes of conduct, I would consider them to be the same thing. They're, neither of them are laws, right? They're, they're they don't down from state legislatures, um, but they are still, I, I think they still guide conduct. And so if there's a policy that every allegation, that there's a report, if there's a reporting policy, that policy should be followed. If uh, for example, an employer doesn't follow that policy. I think that that's the potential grounds for negligence. If if an employer doesn't follow their own policy, and and something happens uh, later on at work, so it's you know I, I think that policies guide conduct. Are they usually employment handbooks say policies or handbooks are not contracts, so there really are no contractual. Uh, obligations that an employer has to enact its own policies. Employers typically have discretion to determine, you know, how they will enact policies. But I do think that they guide conduct, and it's important that they follow policy to show that they actually instituted um, it, it did their due diligence when responding to potential complaints. You know, that's once again, it's the. It's the variability across employers and the ethicality of employers, those who are willing to live up to their promises. Exactly. So the policies in that, the handbook is the promise. And will they honor that? Now, they are more than willing to force employees to honor it. But it's interesting if they themselves will honor it. So I think uh, am I right in saying, I don't want to take the words out of your mouth, but I, I'm following your guidance. It depends who that employer is. It the depends. good employer, you're darn right they will. It depends, Gary. And you and, and lawyers, we say that all the time. And people, you know, they, they roll their eyes when we give that answer. But every circumstance is very different. And as I mentioned earlier, it's going to depend on how well trained, you know, how well oiled of a machine your uh, your internal uh, structure is for yeah, how responsive are they either responsive to complaints and they take complaints as if they were information coming from internal consultants about how to get better and the the you've you've caught us doing something wrong 
we slipped up. Our system is broken in this particular place with this person or with this particular type of behavior, uh, this process, this procedure. And if you can just get it reduced to process and procedures and not just the people you can see, then you shouldn't want to fix it. You can depersonalize it. But I preach. Back to investigations where we left off. Um, they shouldn't show indifference. I agree. Employers should not show uh, indifference to complaints. It just shows they, they're not a learning organization. And, and furthermore, they sort of have contempt for complainants and the rest. But who should be investigated? You, uh, you um, referred there to perhaps outside counsel. That gets pretty expensive to hire outside legal help to do investigations. Do you suggest that that be, should there be a third party? How do you accomplish neutrality investigations? How can an organization investigate itself? How do you deal with that? Well, I think that you should, I mean, I've conducted countless investigations uh, and I think that the investigator needs to be independent. You know, they should be third party investigators who have an independent, who really have no dog in the fight. They really are just fact finders. They're trying to get the facts. They are looking at the facts from um, an unbiased viewpoint. And so an organization, especially, it, it just depends on, I, I think, how well trained, I think you do need to be trained as an investigator. You need to understand how to ask questions. And if an organization has not trained, um, you know, it's HR personnel or whoever it uses to conduct investigations, it's really hard for them to conduct a thorough investigation uh, that's really finding relevant facts relevant to making a determination of the allegations or um, a conclusion about the allegations that are presented by a complainant. And so I really do think organizations, if they have the resources to do so, should always hire a third-party investigator who can take a look at the facts and really uncover things that may not even, that a complainant may not even have brought forward, but the investigator really saw as red flags during the course of the investigation. Because I do think that that internal um, introspective look at the organization can maybe uncover some of the weak spots and some of the weak links that uh, you know need to be addressed to make the the organization better culturally so that you know more serious and more egregious allegations don't come down later on down the line and so yeah, yeah you could not, you don't have to focus on merely retribution and punishment and negative consequences i think you need to focus on the developmental goals that can come out of this look uh, from this investigation uh, we've exposed the following and we can improve in the following ways. God, I'm so old. I remember the TQM movement. I was involved in it, CQI and CPI and all the rest, where it was process improvement. And that was just a fad. It became a, a corporate fad. But I really believed in it because the whole point was, don't you want to get better? Well, you'll get better by correcting your flaws. Now, you have to have a thick enough skin as a corporation, as if it were a person. It's not a person. But um, the leadership, who, I mean, who is the employer? Hey, let's answer that. I never get to ask 
people like you that question. I answer, I ask myself and answer it. So that's crazy. It's internal dialogue, um, which is part delusion. So let's leave that by. Um, what, who's the employer? How do you Maybe. define who the employer is? Yeah. So, I mean, supervisors under the law, there's something called vicarious liability. So the organization is strictly liable for acts of harassment of a supervisor. So, I mean, the supervisor really is a very strong agent for an employer. They really can subject, uh, they can subject the organization to liability uh, in, in, in a way that's what's called strict liability. So if you harass an employee as a supervisor, your you impute your your behavior is imputed directly to the employer. So that is, but the employer itself, I think those are. The, is it that, HR? Is it the executive team? Is it the board? Ooh. You know, and that's a very. I mean, I think it's going to again depend on what the circumstances are. But if you're reporting behavior to uh, to the board, for example, or to a supervisor or to the HR team, and they fail to act, then those particular uh, omissions from the board or for, from HR or from a supervisor, they then can impute liability to the organization. And so it's really dependent upon the facts, what happened, what omissions there were. But and then if it's a colleague, for example, so if you if if you were my colleague, Gary, and you engaged in some act of uh, misconduct towards me and I reported it and you know, super and my supervisor or HR failed to act, then their failure could impute liability to the the organization itself. And so it, would the HR team, in and of itself be the employer, not necessarily, but their acts or omissions could impute liability to the employer. Yeah, I think that concept of liability and vicarious liability is is absolutely critical. In the, uh, the language of our bill, Healthy Workplace Bill, we actually throw a life preserver to employers that say, you will escape vicarious liability and not be held legally liable if you actually took reasonable steps to correct and prevent this behavior in the first place. So we just want the law to scare the employer into proaction as opposed to reaction. But yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so an investigation's done, it's done well, and I agree, it's not done well hardly ever because they haven't invested in training the internal people correctly, or they don't have the money to go outside. But now an investigation decision comes down. One of the, one of the weaknesses of an investigation, and, uh, it's a factor, a systemic um, uh, factor that undermines the quality of almost all investigations, is the failure to corroborate the complainant's story. It happens all the time. But that's because witnesses are reticent to participate. Well, they're downright reluctant or they refuse to participate out of fear of retaliation. <clears throat> but one of the problems in a post-investigation world is that um, the results are cloaked under uh, the shroud of confidentiality, often for the complainant, but clearly for the brave co-workers who came forward to uh, provide 
their version of events. And so that that just basically tells witnesses it's not worth participating uh, and engaging in risky behavior because I'm never going to learn what happened. What they're told is HR typically will say, all you need to know is that steps were taken, things were done. And yet the uh, defendant, the named perpetrator is still there and situations don't change. I lobby for a change in the confidentiality practice. It, I, But would you tell us why companies impose that, use it so traditionally, so regularly or so routinely? And do you, do you agree with me or disagree that there should be changes in disclosure after investigations? I think, Gary, it depends. I, I, I do think that there is a reason for to maintain the confidence protect the people who were involved in the uh, participation of the investigation is one reason. Uh, you want to make sure that there is no retaliation uh, for the complainant, for people who provided information. And so there are many factors that might go into a determination of whether there has been unlawful conduct or conduct. They, um, you know, that, that that's not lawful. So that determination is that's multifaceted. And I think that it's important that you do complain it know that something has that there has been an investigation. I think that is a cathartic um, important are allowing the complainant to know that their concerns have been addressed. But I do think that the disclosure, of everything that went into and I, I do think there are valid reasons for limiting the disclosure of all of that information uh, in, in every single I don't think that all the, that every detail of the investigation should be disclosed. I do think that it is important to uh, protect everyone from any potential retaliation. Um, and, and so I think that that's the reason why there shouldn't be a blanket rule that every investigation is disclosed in every detail to a complaint. No, no, no. I was just saying, let's disclose the outcome. Was it what was the give the finding confirmed or disconfirmed violation? Yes or no? And uh, I think that's I think that that would just go uh, miles to increase trust. And in some circumstances, Gary, I, I do believe that, you know, the complainant is told of what happened and in some circumstances they are not. Um, and so I just, uh, you know, I don't, I think it just depends on this, on the circumstances. It depends on what the allegations are. I understand that. I understand. What about witnesses? I don't think that witnesses should be protected during the course of the investigation. I don't think that witnesses should be disclosed um, to, in general, I think you should protect the identity of witnesses because- No, I no, 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 I understand. No, no, I'm saying, should the witnesses be told, you participated, thank you, and we, we confirm that the policy is violated? I think that witnesses, I, I really- think it depends on the role that the witness role that they what they witnessed 
Um, That's true. I don't that is that, true. I don't think that every witness has the right to know what happened as a result of the investigation. You know, a complainant may not, there are circumstances in which, you know, complainants may not even want the allegations investigated. And there's just a. That's true, um, too. That's true, too. Just an obligation for the company to investigate. That's the worst situation when they say. I mean, if you go with a bullying allegation and you go down to HR um, and they can treat it with indifference, and that's fine because it has no legal standing and there's no and it's unlikely they'll actually have a policy addressing it, though more and more companies are. But uh, let's say they have no policy. There's no law. And um, the person is sent away and they're actually going to be safe from potential retaliation because no investigations launched but if you go down to hr and you're just fishing for an answer is that i'm trying to get an idea is this sexual harassment this is what this is what was said to me and done to me um they will launch uh in a in the a very defensive investigation to protect their own liability uh even against the wishes of the prospective complainant who doesn't want to be a complainant that that bothers me what what say you about that i hate it when that's the company taking care of itself versus listening to the complainant well i think i I train organizations on anti-harassment and i train on never promising confidence that the organization, it's its a legal obligation that the organization has to investigate, even if the complainant says, no, I don't want this investigated, because it's not just the complainant that, that needs to be protected, potentially, but also other people within the organization may need to be protected if there is a potential bad actor um, who, you know, has made sexually harassing comments. You know, if there's someone who is making comments, uh, we'll take women about women in the workplace, complainant has made uh, a complaint of sexual harassment and the, you know, in the organization, if they don't investigate, then that, that organization could potentially expose others to harassment. That's the best answer I've ever heard to that. I've never heard that before. (laughs) Well, no, that's good. That's good. It's important to, I mean, so in when, in my trainings, I, I you know, it's, it's, it, some people may not want, they're meant want to come forward and they're well, shame, embarrassment, retaliation. There's several reasons that are well documented in the research about why women don't report harassment. And then once they do report, not wanting anything to be done about it. And I train on listening to what a harassment complaint may sound like, and it may not come forward in the way that we might think of it as coming, such as here's a written complaint of harassment. Um, you know, this is it may just come forward, and you know, between colleagues. And so it's important to listen out to understand. Okay, what actually does constitute a complaint? It may be between friends. It may be a conversation between friends where the person thought, you know, they were talking to a supervisor who was a friend and the supervisor then says, well, actually, you know, I'm, I'm going to take this up to HR. And so yes. that complainant may 
psychologically safe if you tell witnesses, hey, this is what we this is what we came up with at the at the end of the investigation. So it really just it, it's going to depend on going back to your original question whether witnesses should be informed an investigation. I mean, I think it's going to depend on so many factors. It's going to depend on the nature of the investigation, what was alleged, and often one of the best practices is to what are they looking for? You know, it, it really, and that should be, it may not be a dispositive factor, but that should certainly be considered when you determine what you're going to do next as an employer. I agree. I agree. Let's end on the, how does one leave on defining what is their own terms? So Gary, if you are going to leave, it's an what's the essence of that? It's an introspective process and it doesn't happen overnight. So when you you are working in a toxic workplace, it's going to take some time to even feel empowered enough to call it a toxic educating yourself about what that difference between all of the things what the difference between a toxic workplace and a hostile workplace is, whether there is a legal solution whether it is a determination of, hey, I just, I, I should just quit. But that just quit is not going to come, that decision is not going to come overnight. It's going to come about based on a number of factors that we talked about, based on the number of factors, a number of factors, including the ones that we talked about. And so that determining what your own terms are, that is exactly what it is. You have to determine what your terms are. Are those terms, is that money? Do you need a severance payout in order to leave? Do you need a new job in order to leave? Do you just need some administrative leave time um, after something bad has happened to you so that you can uh, take some time away from the organization but still work there? Do you need to be transitioned to another department if it's a big company? Do you need to be transitioned into another department and work under a different supervisor if your supervisor is creating this toxic workplace? So there may be a range of options, and you should really explore the range of possibilities that exist and the one that is best for you. So it's not always leaving, you know, it, though it, it's not always leaving the job. It could just be going into a different uh, position, a different department, if that exists, if that possibility exists. So you should really be creative. You should be introspective. You should put a lot of thought and education into your process. And remember that it's your process. What, how do you explain to the next, in your application process, to the next prospective employer, why you left? What do you think is the best way to couch that, the best way to phrase that? Sure. Well, that's actually, I mean, I think that's a better question for a career consultant. Um, okay. And, okay. <laughs> um, you know, and from a legal perspective, Deter there. It depends. Like if you have a severance agreement, there may be, and the National Labor Relations Board has just come out with, uh, with with restrictions on what employers can prohibit employees from saying about why they left. So anti disparagement and non disparagement provisions, or the NLRB has said that those are not allowed 
in severance agreements. So that was a big, uh, uh, just a landmine case for uh, employers. Uh, but it's important to think about, you know, are there any legal restrictions uh, determining, you know, how you describe your termination? Um, if you have, if employers may have a neutral reference policy where they're only giving neutral references, but describing a toxic workplace and what you say to the next employer, I really do think that that is a career consultant question. I, I agree. It's and, and I have to lament that we're not advanced nearly enough uh, to where it's easy to say, well, it was a bullying environment, toxic, and I, I choose a safer place. And you are that safer place, are you not? And that see, that would be enlightened. We're not we're not even close to that. So I know. But it's a goal of mine. Um, whether I make it before I leave this mortal coil, I have no idea. I don't know if I'll ever see that, but um, that's that. Jessica, how can people get uh, uh, access to your ebook and your e-course? And give us your website, please. Sure. So, Gary, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. It's truly been a pleasure to speak with you this afternoon. You can keep up with me and your audience can keep up with me by visiting my firm's website at www.thechildressfirm.com. We're also on Instagram at The Childress Firm. That's our handle. We're on Twitter at Childress Firm. And you can also find me on LinkedIn, uh, which is Jessica in Childress. And you'll see my photo if you uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. But if you sign up for our newsletter, we have a, a checklist. Uh, if you download our checklist, you'll be added to our newsletter. And we have a checklist of the key items to consider before leaving a toxic workplace. And Gary, I can give you a link to that so that you can place it in your show notes. But your members can download that checklist and there will be an, a, a bullet pointed checklist of the key items to consider before you leave a toxic workplace. And once you download that checklist, you'll be added to our newsletter where we send out educational resources, including information about the upcoming ebook and e-course. So that is one of the best ways to keep up with me and the firm. Thank you for tolerating my incessant legal questions, Jessica. We need that. Um, you're an attorney. That's what we need. We need a plaintiff's attorney to answer these questions. And the fact that you bring also the experience with organizations, um, reminding us that good organizations actually care, and they and they should, out of enlightened self-interest or just out of compassion or out of the need to minimize their legal liability. I don't care this uh, what's driving them. Just do the right thing for crying out loud. Let's detoxify the workplace so that individuals don't have the uh, burden placed on them so much. But right now, the burden is on the individual employee. And, and I think the fact that you're willing to help bring about some peace, P-E-A-C-E for them, is uh, speaks volumes about your soul and your commitment. And I thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Gary. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, please visit us at workplacebullying.org. You'll find some great resources there for current and past targets. Years of research, including our WBI national surveys and our books, 
Also at the site, you can learn about my expert witness services, workplace bullying university training for professionals, and the Respectful Conduct Clinic to deal with identified offenders. And new in 2021 is a community dedicated to workplace bullying that you can join called Safe Harbor. Thanks again for listening. Remember, work shouldn't hurt.